Uh, we are still in the book of Romans. Um, our series is called Not Ashamed, as we've said each week, that Paul, when he writes this book, is trying to help these Roman Christians. These are Romans. They live in a republic. We live in a republic. They are people that are proud. The Romans were very proud people. They had a strong military. I mean, when you look at, they had great roads. They had great buildings. They, they were the epitome of the world conquerors and world leaders. And Paul is writing to the Christians that are trying to figure out how to live in this culture of Rome. A culture that, quite honestly, we've said week after week, is very similar to ours. A culture in terms of the things they value and art and autonomy and all those things are things that, that the Romans valued. And Paul is trying to get them to see that they need to not be ashamed of the true message of what the world's about, not what the Romans message of what the world about is about. And, and that's just as offensive today as it was to the Romans of Paul's day. It is very offensive to tell people that there's not going to be an America someday. Like God's not going to like raise up America and it's going to be the chosen nation that sits on Jerusalem and then we get to vote who gets to be in power. No, God has established the book of Revelation. He says he's going to reign. He's going to have 12 tribes. Like he's in charge. Does that mean we disrespect our country? We hate? No, not at all. Paul tells the Romans to submit. When the, when the Roman centurion came to know Jesus and said, I believe in you, Jesus didn't tell him to leave his job as a Roman centurion. He told him to, to serve. And so these are the challenges that we find ourselves in. And in the first eight chapters, we're getting ready to start chapter nine. And chapter nine is a switch. For the next three chapters, Paul kind of goes in this, in this other direction. It's not entirely other, but what he's doing in the next three chapters is kind of backing up what he said the last eight chapters. So the last eight chapters, Paul has been laying out the supremacy of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus' name means Yahweh who saves, so he's the Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, who is the Savior, who is the Christ, or the Messiah, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh, okay? That's what Jesus' name means from the Old Testament all the way through. Paul has been laying these huge truths out, and we've looked at them week after week, and Paul is breaking this down. Now we get to chapter 9, and Paul begins to give probably one of the hardest teachings in Scripture. This one's going to be hard for you, I promise. It's hard for every human being, what we read in chapter 9. All of us don't like chapter 9 of Romans, if we're really honest, deep down inside. Because chapter 9 is the chapter that says, do you really believe what I just taught you the last eight chapters? It's like that question in class, like when you're in class and the teacher teaches, and then she asks that zinger question, and you're like, oh, man, like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want, oh, you know. And they were building you up just to ask that question. You're like, come on. Same thing. Paul's kind of doing that here in chapter 9. And he lays out a teaching that is probably the most unpopular teaching ever in the history of God's people. And absolutely, today, incredibly unpopular. And so the question for us today is, will we not be ashamed, not ashamed of God, God himself, not ashamed of God. You see, because what Paul does in chapter 9 is, Paul in chapter 9 is getting ready to give God ultimate supremacy over everything. Remember, 
as he writes his book, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news about who God is. His plan since the beginning of the world and the foundation of the world in Genesis. His good news to a broken world, which we'll talk about today that broke in chapter 3, because it's God's power for salvation. We all know we need to be saved. In every election cycle, people come around and they tell us, I want to save you, vote for me. Welcome to elections. That's what elections are. (laughs) Elections are a bunch of people running around saying, vote for me, I'll save you. And we go, oh, okay. And we vote for that person. And they can't save us. And then we get mad and two years or four years later, depending on their office, we vote another person in that might save us. And what Paul's saying is, look, you Romans think that you can save yourselves. You think you're powerful. You think the next Caesar, your republic, your senate, that they've got, they don't. Salvation can only come to those who believe First to the Jew, in other words, it wasn't that the Jews were like, you know, the only ones that could be saved. He said, no, it was just first given to them, and their responsibility was to get the word out. Just like God tells us and Jesus tells us that it's our responsibility to get the word out. And then to the Greek means anybody that's not Jewish. That's Greek. Then he goes on, he says, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, what what God says is right, what is his will from his character of who he is, from the faith to faith. In other words, the Bible is one story. There isn't like multiple ways to be saved in the Bible. It's always been the same, from faith to faith. It's one of the major lies that we believe. And then he says, just as it is written. I love this. Paul says, just as it is written. I'm not making this up. This isn't some new thing I'm telling you. Anytime someone says, I have a word from God, I'm like, well, you better get out a pen and paper and write that down because that must be scripture. Because anybody, if you got a word from God, then it's scripture. Versus, it is written, this is God's word, which is what Paul says, the righteous will live by faith. You'll trust in God. You'll not be ashamed of who God reveals he is in his word and in his character. And can I just tell you, that's something I fight a lot. When you read the whole story of God and you read the Old Testament, And you read the picture of who God is, which we've talked about in his wrath and his judgment and in his love and his mercy and the decisions that he makes that I would never make. We come to a place where we have to say, do I believe this? But see, there's a lot of Christians or so-called Christians that run around and what they do is they want to change what the Bible says about who God is and who he isn't. And Paul is fighting that because that's what the Romans are trying to do. And Paul says, don't let it happen. These words are true. These words have been accurately translated. They've been passed down. The Bible is the most historically accurate book ever printed. To throw out the Bible means you'd have to throw out every ancient document that we trust in for our history and for knowing what the past was like. There's no more accurate of a book. Now, you can disagree with the the content and the author, but you can't disagree with its accuracy. So he goes on, we're not ashamed of God. Here's where we pick up in chapter 9. Well, actually, it starts in chapter 8. Remember last week, this is what he said. There is therefore no condemnation now exists for those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ, that's the Messiah, can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, he says it again, as it is written, not, I got a new word for you. He says, as it is written in the scriptures, Paul's writing, saying, it's been written before, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. 
See, it's hard to believe sometimes in God's love when we see the mess we're in and the mess around us. Is God really loving? Because it doesn't seem like it. Because if he's loving, he'd fix this problem and fix that problem. And he'd be the God I want him to be. And he would do it this way. See, that's at the heart of all of us. It's at my heart of why I struggle sometimes to believe and not be ashamed of the character of who God is. And so Paul says, look, there's no condemnation for those who are in him. Then he says, for I am persuaded that not even life, death, nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, Democrat or Republican, <laughs> fill in the blank, hostile powers, height their depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in the Messiah, who is Yahweh, who saves, who is our Yahweh. That's what Christ Jesus our Lord means from an Old Testament perspective. Paul is laying this out, and for the last eight chapters, he started in chapter one with this is about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he ends this part of chapter eight and says this is what it's about, and here's what he does. In chapter nine, he knows what question is getting ready to come, because if you read this verse and you say, I'm persuaded that none of these things can separate, then the question is, then why does God allow these things, right? Like, why, then why do we have all this shame and persecution and, and all this stuff? And wh- wh- why doesn't God just get rid of all this so that we can just all be happy and all experience him perfectly? And so Paul goes on in Romans 9 and he says, I speak the truth in Christ. In other words, he's saying, I am speaking to you now, trusting in him, believing his word. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given as a gift to believers to indwell them, to seal them, and to give them the power to understand the scriptures and the power to live this life like Jesus did. And remember, Jesus didn't live in a mansion in this life. Jesus went to the cross in this life. And he says, look at what Paul says, I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. Now pause, you want to read on, right? But pause for a minute. This is what I do in scripture when I'm reading and hopefully you do too. Pause and ask this. So Paul just got done saying, this great Jesus, I cannot be separated from his love, nothing can attack me, everything's awesome. And then he transitions and he says, but there's anguish in me, there's something in me that's killing me inside. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, whoa. What is it? What is it that's causing this guy, Paul, who's so confident, who gave his life for the gospel to to change an entire empire, what is it in him that he is just so sorrowful in light of who Jesus is? He just wrote about how joyful he was of knowing Christ. Then what is the thing that's causing his greatest sorrow? For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah. What in the world is causing Paul to doubt? Like he's, he said before, I can't be cut off. I am confident. I know Jesus. And now he's saying, but this thing could really even make me want to be cut off. For the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. You see, what we have in our world today, especially among Christians and in my own heart, just checking in with you, 
is that when I realize what Christ has done for me, when I realize that the story of the Bible is true and that there is no other way to be saved except through Christ, and I understand why that's true, and I understand these truths that we've looked at in Romans and what the Bible presents, and I come to this place. See, when you realize that, the next thing you realize, and we're going to look at this in a minute, I have the confidence, but do they? So you realize that God has kept you on this earth, that he could have, at the moment you prayed, or the moment you said, yes, I believe in you, he could have sucked you up, put you in heaven, and you could live perfectly and never have a tear in a new body the rest of your life. And all of us are like, yes, please, new body, love to have one. So, like, he could have done that, but he didn't. He left us here. Because that's what, we're, that's what the Jews were originally supposed to do. Remember we just read in chapter 1 where Paul said it was first given to the Jews so they could go out and tell the world by their words and their lifestyle who God was. And so Paul is saying, I believe all this about Jesus. And in the same thought, in the same breath, his heart is breaking for the world around him. And specifically for those who should know the truth and are rejecting it his Jewish brethren and brothers and sisters who have said, no, Jesus isn't our Messiah. And his heart is so broken to the point where he's like, could I die in their place like Jesus died in my place? Could I die? Remember, we just looked at him talking about justification, that Jesus justifies us. We can't stand before God justified. It's Jesus' death that pays the penalty for us so that we can stand before God. And Jesus says, I got you covered. I've covered you. Pass over. I've covered the sin, like the the atonement of the Old Testament. He looks at that and he says, but my Jewish brothers and sisters don't get it. They're believing the lies. They're believing that they're in charge just like the Romans believed they were in charge and they're not submitting to God. And he says, I, I almost wish I could just be cursed if it meant they could come to know it. See, that's the heart of someone who really understands Romans chapter 8 and before it. Someone that really understands who God is. There's this motivation in us that says, I just want to give my life. For everything he's done, I recognize I have heaven as my inheritance. This life's temporary, so I want to leverage everything I can so that people might see the God I just wrote about in chapter 8. Jesus. See, that's where Paul's at. He goes on. Just what Jesus said in chapter 41. So in Luke 19, 41, Jesus says this. This is how Jesus felt. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This is right before his crucifixion. He knows he's going to Jerusalem. He's warned his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be the Passover lamb of the Old Testament. I'm going in on Passover. I'm going to be sacrificed and I'm going to pay for the sins of those who believe in me. And so as he approached and saw the city, that's Jerusalem, Jesus wept over it, saying... If you knew this day, what would bring peace? If only you would believe, if only you believed the last eight chapters, if only you understood, but now it is hidden from your eyes. It's hidden. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This happened, by the way, in 70 AD. 
the Romans set the temple on fire. The temple was set on fire. The gold of the temple melted into the rock and they told the soldiers they could tear the temple down to get to the gold and they tore it down stone by stone to get to the gold in the temple. It happened exactly like Jesus said it would happen. And then the Romans made sure they scattered the Jews all over so they couldn't come back together to do another revolt because they kept revolting against the Romans. So they scattered them all over the empire on purpose. Move or die. And Jesus was broken that that was what God's will was. That he was broken over the fact that this was going to happen, just like Paul is. In Romans 9, he goes on, he says, they are Israelites. That means they come from Israel. The name Israel comes from the Old Testament. It's the name that God gave Jacob. He says, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all, praised forever, amen. In other words, Paul says, these people, my people, have been given so much, and all they can do is gripe and complain and not acknowledge their Messiah. They're looking for all these things to save them, and these things won't save them. They're supposed to be adopted. It belongs to them to be the adopted children of God. And they've rejected it. The glory is supposed to be, they were supposed to be the glory. They were supposed to be the kids that said, look what it's like to have a father like our God. Look at what we can, look. And instead they just did what the world did. The glory, the Shekinah glory and the Holy of Holies was there to give to the world. The covenants, all the covenants that God made. The giving of the law, that God gave them the word, the law as a gift. The temple service, that they got to show people what was right and off limits and on limits to worshiping God. And all the promises of scripture that God gave. And he said, even the ancestors, we trace ourselves back. Almost the majority of the world's population traces their lineage back to Abraham. And he looks and he says, man, they had all this given to them and they missed it. They missed their day of visitation. They missed it. Can I just tell you, I see that all the time as a pastor and it breaks my heart. There's nothing that breaks my heart more than that. To watch God working on someone and you think, oh, they're going to get it. They're going to get it. They're, they're almost there. And they, they just, their heart hardens and they're like, no. And you're like, God, why? What are you doing? Why can't they know chapter 8? This, this Jesus, this confidence. And that's where Paul is in Romans 9. He's in anguish here, just like Jesus was in anguish as he knew what was coming when he was going into Jerusalem. And he just is looking and going, how can you not get this? You've been given everything. Can I just tell you, God has a way of giving people all kinds of stuff. Just because you get stuff, just because you, your life looks blessed, doesn't mean you know him. And that's what Paul's writing here. You can be given every benefit that God has to offer and still reject it. I know that's true and we'll see it in a minute because of Genesis chapter 3. That Adam and Eve were given the entire world and they rejected God for one plant, one tree. Because that's our hearts. Jesus tells a parable about 
the heart of someone who gets this. In Luke 18, we're going backwards through Luke, you'll see in a second. Jesus says this, again, he's going to Jerusalem, he's doing some teachings. His teachings start ramping up and getting harder from about Luke 14 all the way to the cross. He is like throwing some zingers in there. Jesus then told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Again, you read Romans 8 and you say, oh, I know this Jesus, he's awesome, it's wonderful, it's so great, I'm so confident, all these things. So Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing Paul, knowing his own heart, he writes and he says, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, that's a religious leader, and the other was a despised tax collector. Just like today, we love the IRS, don't we? They come knocking on the door, we're like, oh, come on in, I give you some cookies and milk. Here's all my papers because I love you and I just want to show the glory of my God through how I've paid my taxes my whole life. No, we hate tax collectors. <laughs> we vote for people who say, I won't collect taxes from you, but I'll do the other guy. Yeah, we want you as our tax collector. That's, I'm voting for that guy. We're no different. And so Jesus looks and he says, the Pharisee stood by himself. So the Pharisee, social distance, had his mat. No, I'm just kidding. He's, He's standing by himself and prayed this prayer. Oh, I thank you, God. And we're like, oh, that's a good prayer. It's a good way to start out. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Well, yeah, because if God's changed me, I know that I haven't done that work, that God's done the work in me. So this seems like a pretty good prayer so far. And then he says, you know, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. Look at what he says next. I certainly, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. Why in the middle of a prayer to God of worship is he like, oh, God, 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 yeah, <laughs> that guy. See, that's what we do as Christians. We're all in the middle of worship and then something happens and we're like, <laughs> and God's like, well, what happened? I thought, I thought we had a good prayer going here. I thought we were having a relationship and now you're all focused on everything else. And he goes, I'm just, and then he looks what he says. Then he wants to prove himself. He looks at that guy and he says, now I'll, I'll show God. And he says, I fast twice a week. And I give you a tenth of my income. Now he's bragging to God. Now he's saying, I'm in the place of God. Look at what I, look at what I deserve, God, because I'm awesome. And you need to give it to me. And I'm better than that guy. See, that's, that's world religion 101. All the religions of the world believe this except for Christianity. Christianity is the only one that presents what Jesus said and what Paul said, he goes on, but the tax collector stood at a distance, so he's at a distance too, but for a different reason. See, the Pharisee stands at a distance because he doesn't want to be corrupted by anyone. I don't want you sinners to be around me. I don't want to get sick. I don't, so I'm going to keep my distance so I can be safe and secure and everything will be fine and my world will be a great place that I'm in control of. The tax collector stands at a, different, at a distance because he's afraid that he'll infect everyone else. He's standing at a distance because of his own brokenness, his own sin, because he doesn't feel worthy to be in anyone's presence. He goes on and he says, he dared not lift his eyes. The Pharisee's looking into heaven going, oh God, you're awesome. And we just, and the tax collector's just like, I, I, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And he says, as he prayed, instead he beat his chest in sorrow, like Paul, like Jesus in sorrow, saying, oh God, be merciful to me. I know I don't deserve it, for I am a sinner. I, I don't measure up to you. You are so holy and awesome. I am not ashamed of the fact that you are the God of the universe. 
that you are in full control. And I stand before you saying, you're in control, I'm not. I surrender. And it says, Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, return home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, does that mean we're pushovers? No. What's the motive? Who are you trying to exalt? Are you trying to exalt God? Are you trying to exalt something else? Paul goes on, or Jesus goes on and says this in Luke 16. He tells another story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man goes to Hades or Sheol and the Lazarus goes to heaven, the poor man Lazarus, and they're talking to Father Abraham, but Abraham said, because the rich man is saying, please warn them of what's coming, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, even if if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Doesn't matter. See, because faith leads to faith. Belief leads to belief. Not, I believe until God says or does something I don't like, and then I'm out. I believe until God doesn't give me what I think he should give me, and what I think I need to have to do what I want to do in this world, and then I'm out. Faith says, I believe he's the God of the universe and I'm going to surrender to him even if I am, like Lazarus was in this story, a poor man my whole life and have no riches. Paul goes on to say, but it's not as though the word of God has failed because see, here's the thing. When we look that the Jews had all the covenants and all the promises and all the stuff, then the first next question is, holy smokes, if they had all that and rejected, what hope is there for me? And he says, it's not as though the word of God failed. It's not like God said, well, I tried and, you know. No, he says, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, Abraham and then Isaac was Abraham's son, so it's still through Abraham. And he goes, that is... It's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. In other words, God told Abraham, wait for my will to be done. And Abraham and Sarah said, no, thank you. We want to get Hagar. Abraham's going to sleep with Hagar. We're going to agree to the sexual union of three people. We're going, to, we're going to agree to this. Hagar's going to do this. She has Ishmael. Ishmael is born. And, they, and then Abraham comes to God and says, here is my son Ishmael. Bless him. And God's like, no. No. I mean, I'll bless him. In other words, I'm going to keep my promise to you that, that Ishmael will have tons of offspring, i.e. the entire Middle East. The entire Middle East are Abraham's offspring. All the Islamic people believe they're descended from Ishmael. And he says, not all from Israel are are, are of Israel. He lays all this out and he says, look at this. He says, it's not the children by physical descent, but the children of the promise. See, Isaac was the promised child they were supposed to wait for. You don't save yourself, you wait for God's salvation. We are still waiting 2,000 years later for God's promised child to finally come again, to save us. That's what he's talking about. And he says, look, 
at this time, I'm going to come. But see, this is a message that's hard for us because what we want to do is say, well, but my mom and dad, and I was raised in church, and I did this, and I did this good thing, and I did that good thing. And we want to give God an entire list of things that prove our worth instead of saying, it doesn't matter who my dad is. It doesn't matter. If I don't have you, if I don't know you, I've got nothing. And see, that's exactly what Paul's getting at. It's not like the word of God failed. God kept his end of the bargain. He goes on, he says, not only that, but also Rebecca received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's promise according to the election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told, the older, that's Esau, will serve the younger, that's Jacob. As it is written, I have loved Esau, but I have hated, or I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. This is the part. This is the part where most people run from Christianity like crazy. Or they try to change the message of the Bible. Right here in Romans 9. And that's why Paul is like, God's word doesn't fail because God's character, who he is, he is not ashamed to be who he is. He's not trying to get us to like him. He's not like playing the game of like, well, I hope if I do this, they'll respond. And, you know, I gave them good gifts and I hope they come to my house for Christmas. Like, that's not God. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's like, I'm here anytime you want to come. Like, that's God. And so he, he looks at this and he lays that. And we read that and we go, how could God hate Esau. Isn't hate wrong? Well, look at what Jesus says. In Luke 14, 25, this is Jesus. Everybody says, oh, Jesus was just so loving and kind. And Now, great crowds were traveling with him. Great crowds. Jesus is the most popular man in Judea at this point in, Roman, or in Luke 14. This is, the most, this is one of the highest moments of his entire ministry. And he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife, children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It doesn't say he, he might not be able to. Cannot be my disciple. And then he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? You see, it's not about us like the Pharisees sitting down, calculating the cost, looking and going, now look at everything I did, God. It's like the tax collector sitting down, calculating the cost and saying, I can't save myself. My father can't save me. My mother can't save me. My marriage can't save me. My children can't save me. My brothers and sisters can't save me. My life can't save me. Being healthy, being physically fit can't save me. I've calculated the cost of all of these people trying to save me, and you know what it ends up? I'm still dead. <laughs> I get to the end of my life, and I'm still not, I'm dead. I, it's over. These things won't save me. And so Jesus is saying, in light of who God is, you have to have like, like a wall in your heart to not say, I'm going to believe what he says. I'm not going to trust in these things. And this would have been very hard in their culture because they were taught to believe in country and in father. Abraham, us, the forefathers, they, they were taught to believe in the family. 
and in pleasure in their life. They were taught all the same things. And that's why many people stopped following him when he did these kind of teachings. They were like, oh, we're done with him. We're walking away. We don't want to hear that message. Like, we thought you were really nice. You were healing sick people. You were nice to the prostitutes and tax collectors. And like, you were nice to now, but that, that's not nice. Because see, what Jesus is saying is, God's in control of everything. And if you don't understand that, what's going to end up happening is you're going to end up loving something else and hating God instead of hating things and making sure your love for God is good. And here's what Jesus says later and what the Bible teaches, that if we get our hearts aligned rightly with God, then we'll love people the way he says for them to be loved. But oftentimes that love seems like hate because God's love seems like hate. You don't think so? The cross. How could a loving God kill his own son? How? How could he do that? I don't want to believe in a religion like that. I want to believe in a religion where everybody's okay and everybody's happy and everything just works out. I don't know if I can believe in a God like this. I don't know if I can believe in a God that put the hatred of sin on his son for us. Guys, this is the message of Christianity. Either it's true, or as Paul says in another area where he writes, we're the craziest people on the planet. We're to be, we're to be pitied for this message. And there are people trying to change this message. There are people that are trying to change it to make God's sound better so they don't have to be ashamed of the way God presents himself in Scripture as sovereign, as ruler, as king, as in charge. And there are people flocking to those messages. He goes on in 14, it says, what should we say then? This is Paul. Because after he lays all this out, the hatred, the love of Jacob, the hatred of Esau, he says, then what should we say? Is there injustice with God? In other words, how God dare, how dare God love one son and not the other son? I thought God was loving to everyone. I can't believe in a God that doesn't love everyone equally. He says, Absolutely not, for he tells Moses, I will, so, so listen, you would think that Paul would ask this question and then he'd want to clarify so that like he doesn't bring shame to the name of God and Christ. Like, okay, I know that was hard. Let me explain it to you. Let me give you a moment to, to sink that in. Let me tell you some positive things. Paul doubles down. He doubles down on this and he says, for he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I might display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what the Jews were supposed to be doing, proclaiming his earth. He said, I raised Pharaoh up so that I could show myself to the world. Then he says, so then he shows mercy to those he wants to and he hardens those he wants to harden. Guys, this was said to Moses in the Old Testament and Paul's repeating it in the New Testament. This isn't like a Paul saying. This goes all the way back. So if you want to throw this out as, well, I like the words of Jesus and I like the stories of the Old Testament, but Paul, I'm really not sure if he really was an apostle. I'm really questioning his writings and what he writes. And all. Okay, great. Then go back to Moses. These are hard things for us to believe in a God that's sovereign, that he's in control, that he, that he does what he wants to do. 
We can't stand that as human beings. I need a God that I can understand, that does things the way I want them done, that he proves himself the way I want him to prove himself, and if I can't find that, then I'm moving on to another one. I don't want a God that says this kind of stuff. This, this makes me feel ashamed of like, I gotta present this God to people that he's sovereign and wild and free. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? In other words, if this is true, that God has mercy on whom he has mercy and he has justice on whom he has justice, and if that's true, then, then how can God find fault? You see, Paul's asking the questions that we ask. Well, I don't know if I can believe in a God in this, that he would just condemn people. That I, I just, how could he find fault? If, or who could resist God's will? I mean, if God really wanted them to be saved, he'd make them be saved. He, he'd show them. Look at what Paul says in verse 20. He says, but who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? You see, this is the same thing that happens to Job in the book of Job. When he's going through everything that he's going through in the book of Job, Job comes to the place at the end where he's been crying out to God. He's been telling God how he feels and, 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 and how he feels like, why is this happening to me? I don't understand. I've been righteous. I've done the right thing. But God, what are you doing? His friends are like terrible. His friends are telling him, well, Job, if you did this and if you did that and if you just do this, then it wouldn't have ended up that way. And they have no mercy, no patience for Job's suffering because his friends, like the Pharisees, have it all worked out with God. I gotta deal with God. I do these things and God gives me blessings and that proves that I'm with God. And if Job's suffering, it proves God's not with him. So Job, we need to get God with you again. And God is in heaven going, no, I'm with Job. I'm not with you guys. That's what we find at the end of the book. And there's a moment in, chapter, in the last part of Job, where, where, where God, right as Job's getting ready to cry out and like curse God, God stops him and says, Job, I'm in control of everything. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I put the mountains in place? Where were you? He just like, I mean, Job's hurting. He's got boils all over his body. He's dying. His wife's told him to kill, to kill himself three times. Okay, she has. His friends are not counseling him well. They're like, you're a mess, and they don't want to spend time. I mean, he's lost everything, his fortune, all of his children. He is in the worst possible mess he could be in. But see, Job doesn't understand what's going on behind the scenes, that there's a spiritual battle for God's glory that's going on. But Job's smart enough to know that he's not God, and so he doesn't curse God. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't push away. He just invites God, like, God, I, I need you. He's crying out to God, and God shows up, and God doesn't look at him and say, oh, Job, I was just waiting for you to cry to me. I, it's just so good to see you. No, God's like, hold on. I've let you say a lot of things. I'm gonna double down for a minute, and I'm gonna even go into my majesty, my glory, and my power deeper than you can imagine. And he just lays it thick on Job, and here's the key. When God gets done for like, Three chapters just pounding Job with his glory and his righteousness. Remember, Job is one of the oldest books of the Bible. When God's done pounding on Job, Job's response is, you're right. I surrender. I'm yours with whatever you want. And it's at that moment that all of heaven is rejoicing the battle's been won and God restores Job and his family and it's, a, it's like this, Wow! Moment in scripture of God saving Job. Job didn't do anything but go, yeah, you're right, I'm, I'm nothing. Paul's doing the same thing here in Romans and he's saying, who are you? 
Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? How dare you? How did, why didn't, like if the tax collector said, I wish you would have made me like the Pharisee, but you didn't, I'm just a tax collector. Who are we to look at God and tell him what he should do, how he should do it, when he should do it? Like, like we have some right. And can I tell you, this is one of the most popular teachings of our day. One of the most popular teachings of our day is the teaching that if there is a promise you find in Scripture, you can demand it from God now. You can make heaven come from earth right now and tell him, I deserve it, I want it, you said it, give it to me. That is the scariest teaching. When you hear that, everything in you, like Paul, should just break. You should be like Paul and Jesus. When they looked out and when they hear that teaching from God's people, you should be like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. They don't get it. I don't know if they really know the God of this book. This is scary. Does that mean we can't ask God for things? No, we can, we can petition God. He wants us to come to him, talk to him, ask him to have a relationship with him. But he's dad. And if he says, you don't need that, not giving it to you. We go, okay. <laughs> I trust you. I believe that your way is better than mine, that you see things I don't see, and I can trust you with my life. He goes on, he says, or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? You see, we look at that and go, so you're telling me I'm just clay, I'm, I'm nothing, to God. I'm just dust? Yeah, God created Adam and Eve out of the dust. He formed them. Everything else he spoke into existence and it says he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. It was an intimate creation. And you think, how can anybody, anybody, any God that would do this, I don't know if I can believe in him. Really, let me ask you, do you believe you have the right to things, to crush them, to make them, to to do things? I mean, we're going to have lunch here in a few minutes. You think you have the right to kill those plants and those animals that you're getting ready to eat? Who gave you that right? There's scientific studies that say plants actually feel cutting. Like the electrons in the plant goes up when, when a plant's cut. Who gave you the right to do that? How dare you? Stop it. Just go meditate on a mountain and die. Don't touch anything, don't break anything. See, We put this on God, but then in our own life, like the Pharisee, we're like, but this is all the stuff I want to be in control of. These are all things I'm going to do, and this is the food I'm going to eat, and how I'm going to do it, and what I'm going to do. And we create all these systems, and God in heaven's just scratching his head going, how do you not see the connection? That you guys dominate your world, that you go out and ask people to do what you want, but if I ask you to do what I want, if I show you who I am in my character, you're like, oh, I can't have a God like that. But you act the same way. We all act like we're little sovereigns. You don't think so? Have somebody come set up a tent on your property to live on it. Dig a hole in your yard and poop in it and see how you feel about it. See if you're like, well, that's nice that I could provide a space for someone in my yard and that they're out there. And the Bible does say in Deuteronomy to dig a hole for yourself and to bury it. And they're doing that. They're obeying Deuteronomy and what God said. They're not defiling the camp of my yard. I'm so grateful. No, we're going to be like, there's someone in my yard using the bathroom. Could you please come help me? Why? Because we think we have the right. That's our land. It's my yard. Where does that come from? It comes from God. It 
comes from us wanting to take the place of God. And it comes from a God who has rules and laws. And those rules and laws expose our heart. And that guy thinking that he can just come on this property and do whatever he wants exposes his heart that he thinks he can be a sovereign, not under law, not under rule, but do whatever he wants. The question is, you take that up high enough and eventually we get to a point of what's really right, what's really true, and who's really in charge. And in our world, every time what happens in our world to get to that is war. It's force. Every time. Oh, and by the way, that's also God. Because he's going to come back someday with force to make the world the way he wants to make it. And those who have chosen him will be with him, and those who don't, don't. And these teachings are hard because we think, how can God harden some? And, and listen, Jesus said, there is a day of visitation. There is a day that God will visit you, and you will make a choice. And on that day, you're going to be hardened, or you're going to be drawn. Our free will somehow fits into God's sovereignty, and that has been argued about since the beginning of creation. Somehow God fits it together, and scholars, anybody who tells you they know how it works, they're crazy. They don't. God has not given us the clarity on how that all works. He's given us some clarity, but not all of it. Look at what Genesis 3 says as we wrap up. In Genesis 3, all the way back to the first instance of human beings interacting, being challenged with these questions that Paul's laying out in Romans 9. It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. We know the serpent representing the devil, Satan, who was cast down from heaven. He made a choice to, to reject God because he wanted to be God. And it says, he said to the woman, look at this, did God really say? Let me repeat that. Did God really say? Guys, I don't know about you. That is my question every day. It is what I wrestle with at the core of my being. Did God really say? Do I believe that he has the right to say what he wants and demand what he wants because he is the sovereign creator of the universe or not? And the answer should be, yes, God did really say that. Thank you very much. Did he say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? She gives a little answer. He says, no, you will not die. She says, we'll die if we eat it. The serpent says, no, you will not die. The serpent's actually right. They won't die physically, but they're going to die. They won't die immediately physically, but they're going to die spiritually. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, look at what he does. He spins it. See, Eve is afraid of death. She's afraid of God. Otherwise, she would just go to God. And if someone asked the question, right, here's what should have happened in this scenario in Genesis 3. It's what we don't do. Somebody shows up, did God really say that? Hold on, let me check, I'll get back to you. Get the Bible, we pray, we go ask, then we come back and say, I took some time, I'm pretty sure he said it. Here's where I can show you, here's how he said it. There you go. It's not what Eve does. Eve allows herself to stand and go, oh, I don't know, well that's a good question. Mm, I don't. Boy, I'm doubting now that God's real. I mean, I just... You, we don't go back to God and be like, you're sovereign, what do you say? We just kind of listen to all of it and try to put it all together. And then he goes, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, which they were, and you will be like God, knowing 
good and evil. See, God created Adam and Eve to only know good. They already knew good. Everything around them was perfect and good. They only knew good. What he should have said was, the truth would have been that God knows that you'll be like him and you'll understand what evil is. But see, the same, we can't be lied to that way. See, what he said is, God's not good. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. It's like, well, of course we can't be like him. We're created. We're a pot. Pots, it's not like Beauty and the Beast. You don't become chip, have a little chip in you, run around and talk. That's not how it works. We're pots. He's creator. Like, God says your eyes will be open, and you know what? That's what we love. I just want my eyes open to, to everything, to new things, to everything. And God's like, if that's your heart, if your heart isn't open for your eyes to be open to me and what I say, you're going to get in big, big trouble. Then Paul wraps up and he says this. I know these teachings are hard, but he, Paul says, what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? See, we've inherited cancer, spiritual cancer and sin that's been passed down from generation to generation. It's in our genes. Can't get rid of it. We can try to prevent it. We can do things that, that cause us to... to to take care of it. You know, if you've got the breast cancer gene, you can, you can get mammograms, you, you, can, you can have a mastectomy, you can do everything you want, but the gene's still there and it still can become activated to kill you even if you get rid of all that. And it's no different. He says, we are objects of wrath. We should be destroyed. The tax collector said, I should be destroyed. Paul said, I am the wretch, I'm a wretched man. He said that. We looked at that in chapter 7. What a wretched man I am. And he goes, but what if God did this to make known the riches of his glory to objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Greeks, it's offered to all. What if the reason that God has done everything that he's done is just to try to show us who he is? And we keep trying to make him who we want him to be, and God's like, no, that's not who I am. That's not the full picture of what I'm doing. See, that's the fact that, like we looked at last week, we're not ashamed of God's will because God's will comes from the character of who he is as a being, as a supreme, sovereign being who offered his best, his son, to us. See, this is beautiful. When you understand that Paul says we can be confident in this relationship, not because what we've done, not because we've measured up, not because we're getting everything right, but because we just say, you're God, you're sovereign, and I submit there's a freedom in that that begins to change us. We begin, unlike Adam and Eve, to go to God's word, to want to know what he says, to want to know who he is. We want to believe that he is loving, even in the midst of his justice and wrath. And we want to believe that he's righteous and it's good for him to do right things and be righteous. And when we have that kind of a relationship, all of a sudden he starts to order our life in a way that just brings him glory and is amazing. 
See, what Paul's getting at in Romans chapter 9 is he's getting these things. Look, God is in control. He is sovereign. And you can wrestle with these questions. You can judge God and say, well, I can't believe in you. If you do this, you do that, you do this. Or you can look and say, man, these are some hard teachings. I'm not sure I understand this. But as Peter said to Jesus in the New Testament, when, Peter, when Jesus gave a very hard teaching, Peter looked at him and he said, I don't know where else we go to find the words of life. No one else but you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, the opportunity to be in your word. Father, I thank you that you don't hold back your character. You give us freedom to know you, to seek you. That There's a wall between us because of sin, but that you broke through that wall. Jesus, when you died, the curtain of the temple ripped in two to show that there is access directly with the God of the universe. You are sovereign. You are holy you're also merciful and you have grace extended. Father, I pray that if this morning there's someone that's feeling that invitation, as Jesus said, that you're, you're talking to them and you're looking at them and saying, do you understand who I am? And they've not surrendered their life to you, that today would be the day when they take that step of faith that we read about from faith to faith, that they would say, I believe. I'm going to believe. I'm going to put my trust in this being that he is who he says he is. Father, for those of us who are Christians, I pray that we would not be ashamed of who you are, that we would teach rightly about who you are because it's who you are, that we wouldn't make it up, we wouldn't sugarcoat it, we wouldn't cover over it. We'd be gracious when, when we tell people about you. We'd be humble. We'd be caring when we tell people about you. But we wouldn't hold back and be ashamed. God, that's what our world needs. That's what we need right now as a country. We need believers who will rise up to point people to where salvation really lies, which is in you. We thank you that you've given us your precious word, your precious promises, your covenants. You've given us the history of the patriarchs. You've given us all of this. I pray that we would respond. We pray all this in your name. Amen.